I met Edward Van Halen in June or July of 77. They were still about eight months away from releasing their first record, which would come out in February 78. They had signed the deal on Warner, uh, but the record hadn't come out yet. So I meet him on this nondescript night at the Whiskey Go-Go, you know, famous club out here in Hollywood. And uh, we just start, I'm introduced to him and we start talking. It's just a remarkable conversation. I sort of describe it as one of those conversations that you started somewhere a long time ago and you're just kind of resuming the, the conversation. And for the next 26 years, I was sort of friends with him. Have you ever seen any other musician that you've interviewed, that you've been around, have that kind of effect on people? That's an excellent question. I'm glad you asked me that. I don't mean to get overly dramatic, but it was like idolatry. I mean, it, it really was. They loved him and they revered him and they loved his music, but I think they loved the person as well. They didn't know him, they'd never met him, but they felt like they knew him. And that came from his on-stage persona. That's why I think Edward went beyond being just a guitar player to a, a legend, was that connection with him personally. This is Janet Fitch. This is Jeff Jackson. This is Dana Spiota. This is Chris L. Terry. This is Michael Amos Cody. This is Lance Olson. This is Jessamine Violet. This is Zachary Lazar, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. is lit season three hey there lit listeners welcome to another episode of rock is lit the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels and also a finalist in the 2023 popcon indie podcast contest in the category of art and culture. Rockus Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hi, this is Wadi Wachtel. You're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Rockus Lit is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. Special shout out to this semester's Rock is Lit interns, production intern Cater Jones, and social media intern Jenna Rudolph. Another special shout out to Tim Randall for research assistance on episode 45 on Stephen Rosen. Find out more about me and Rock is Lit on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. Drop me a line at ChristyAlexanderHallberg at gmail.com to let me know what rock novels you'd like to hear featured on the show. And for goodness sakes, subscribe, comment, leave a five-star rating and all that good stuff on your podcast platform of choice. Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for your support. Heads up, lit listeners, I'm throwing down the gauntlet. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to find some fiction 
be it novels, short stories, or even graphic novels, on Van Halen. If you strike gold, email me some titles and authors, or post them in the comments of wherever you're listening to this episode. And if I do an episode of Rock is Lit on your suggestion, I'll give you a shout out. Now, why am I presenting you with this particular challenge? Well, in this episode, which is actually part one of episode 45, we're going to be talking with music journalist Stephen Rosen about his nonfiction book on Eddie Van Halen called Tone Chaser, Understanding Edward, My 26-Year Journey with Edward Van Halen. And ever since I scheduled Steve for the podcast, I've been dying to know if anyone has written about Eddie or the band as a whole in a fiction book. I am a huge rock novels nerd, as you know, and of course the heart and soul of this podcast is rock novels. All I've been able to find on Van Halen are fan fiction websites, and fan fiction just ain't my bag, y'all. Okay, for those of you crouched at the Van Halen Fiction Challenge starting line, on your marks, get set. Now back to Stephen Rosen and part one of episode 45. Stephen Rosen is a distinguished music journalist with an illustrious career spanning over 45 years. His extensive body of work, exceeding 1,000 articles, has graced major global publications from the United States and Canada to Japan, Germany, and beyond. Steve's contributions, including cover stories for Guitar Player and Guitar World, have left an indelible mark on the music journalism landscape. Notably, his mid-80s tenure as West Coast correspondent for Guitar World, marked by seven cover stories, remains pivotal, particularly his three lead features on the legendary Edward Van Halen. Beyond his journalistic prowess, Steve has authored seven books, delving into the lives of iconic figures like Jeff Beck, Prince, Bruce Springsteen, and Black Sabbath. His latest endeavor, Tone Chaser, Understanding Edward, My 26-Year Journey with Edward Van Halen was published in 2022. The book offers an intimate perspective on the guitar virtuoso and Steve's friendship with him from 1977 to 2003. Thanks for joining me, Steve. Very happy to be here, Christy. Congratulations on your book, Tone Chaser, which is going into a third edition, I believe. It is. That's amazing. When is that going to be out? Uh, it's pretty unbelievable. I've actually, these past few days, I've been putting sort of finishing touches on it to get it ready for the printer. It'll have a new cover, new back cover. I got some new blurbs in the back from some very, very cool people. Nice. Added some photos that weren't in the first or second edition. And if everything goes according to plan, I'm hoping to have them early to mid-February. But that's hard to tell. It has to uh, travel across the ocean. And then, you know, the Long Beach, the, the port of Long Beach, which is a little bit north of me here in Lake Forest, depending if, uh, you know, the truck drivers are motivated that day, you know, they, they could sit in the dock for, for days and days, or they could get them on a truck and, and get them up in, in one or two days. So that, that's difficult to tell. But I think late January, early February is, is a pretty good guess. That's fantastic. Yeah. It hasn't even been out a full year yet. Actually, the second edition, I think, has only been out, I'm going to say March or April of this uh-huh. year. 
And then the first edition all sold out in about the same length of time. But really, less than two years, I sold out of, of two editions and just overjoyed. I mean, it's, uh, it feels wonderful for sure. Well, yeah, and you've gotten some pretty amazing blurbs. One in particular from Joe Satriani is actually on the Amazon page. There's a little video with him that's really nice. Hey, everybody. Joe Satriani here. I wanted to tell you about this great book by Steve Rosen called Tone Chaser. And yes, it's all about Eddie. Uh, Steve interviewed him for 26 years, got to know him really well, close friends, played with him. And uh, you've got to just check out this book. Look how big this is. Look at that. It's amazing. It's fantastic information in here and insights into the genius of King Eddie Van Halen. Check it out. Tone Chaser by Steve Rosen. It was unbelievable. Uh, you know, I've, I've known Joe probably his first or second solo record. And, uh, you know, he was always incredibly open and, and honest with me. You know, it's one thing to sit there and, and interview an artist for a magazine. You know, you're doing a story. It's an entirely different thing to have them endorse something that you're doing, put their name on it. And literally, I, I reached out to him. Hey, Joe, I've got a book coming out, man. Would you put up a little post? And, and literally, like an hour later, he had sent that little video and um, some photos. It was, it was just unbelievable. The guy's incredible. That's fantastic. Well, I gave a brief description of the book in the intro. Do you want to tell listeners a little bit more about just the nature of the book? I met Edward Van Halen in June or July of 77. They were still about eight months away from releasing their first record, which would come out in February 78. They had signed the deal on Warner, uh, but the record hadn't come out yet. So I meet him on this nondescript night at the Whiskey Go-Go, you know, famous club out here in Hollywood. And uh, we just start, I'm introduced to him and we start talking. It's just a remarkable conversation. I sort of describe it as one of those conversations that you started somewhere a long time ago and you're just kind of resuming the, the conversation. And for the next 26 years, I was sort of friends with him. He would go out on the road and I wouldn't talk to him many times for months on end, but he'd come back and we'd hang out and, and it was just amazing. So it's basically a story of, I've actually sort of described it as a, as a modern fable. Yeah. You know, this rock and roll journalist guy meets, you know, arguably the greatest guitar player on the planet in one of the biggest bands in the world, you know, and how that relationship sort of has ebbs and, and flows. And that's what the story's about. There's all these amazing moments spent in his company and trying to really get inside who this person was. And then 17 years after our last conversation, which was in 2003, I sit down and think, well, you know, maybe I, I should write about this. And I'd, I'd had friends sort of push me and I'd always shied away from it because quite honestly, I was intimidated by it. I didn't think I was capable as a journalist, as a writer, as this person to write this story about this remarkable musician. I slowly got past that and sat down and started writing. And um, 14 long months later, uh, I walked away with the first edition of Tone of Chaser, 580 pages. Um, yes, it is. Yeah, a long one. You know, typically those kinds of music biographies are about half that length, uh, about 250 pages. And I just thought, well, hey, you know what? It's my book. If nobody reads it, I can at least say that I wrote it. And, and I'm going to, you know, bring Sinatra, I'm going to do it my way. and. <laughs> You know, so you just kind of follow your nose. It's different, though. 
this has got transcripts from interviews. It's got transcripts from phone calls. It's got anecdotes. There's a lot of you in it. I don't think I've ever read anything quite like it. And I think everybody who's reading it's saying the same thing, which is why you're getting the response that you're getting. Well, that's great. Well, I, I hope your, your observations come from a positive place. And Absolutely. Yes. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And again, I never looked at it as a memoir. I didn't want to write a book strictly of interviews. I mean, I could have just tossed all those interviews in there and yeah. honestly, it would have been an easy ride. I didn't want to write a book just about Edward, the guitar player, because that had been done. There was a couple of books already out there, you know, uh, and honestly, those guys who did those books know that stuff much better than I do. I mean, mm-hmm. I've written for guitar magazines all my life, but I was never like that sort of knowledgeable about pickups and fret wires. And so I left that to sort of those other guys. And yes, at a point in time, I realized, wow, this is really different. You know, yeah. it jumps back in time, which you're not supposed to do in a biography. You know, you're supposed to stay, I think, in the present or the past. I forget. But I thought, good. You know, if I got to go back there and, and sort of sit there on the couch next to him to describe what was happening, I'm going to do that, you know. Yeah. Um, and you're right. There was a lot of anecdotal stuff. And things that struck me as, as being important elements, when I was hanging out with him, I thought, I, I need to really describe those moments. Edward holding a, a guitar, and just the beautiful way that he held it in his lap, and Edward smoking cigarettes, which he was constantly doing, you know? Yeah. And then I, 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 there's a, a device in there, which I've, I've called kind of the, the third eye, the, the narrator guy, who always sort of speaks in, in a note section. And here's this guy who knows everything. He's much smarter than this Steve Rosen guy. So he's looking down at Steve Rosen and go, dude, that's the stupidest question you've ever asked anybody. Dude, don't forget to ask Edward about that. And, and did you forget to, you know what I mean? So I, I could sort of cover my own tracks. I could be my own critic inside yeah. my own book, you know, and, and I thought that was different and people would react to that. So, it's yeah. also fun when you're reading the transcripts of some of the interviews, when you add notes and you give a little bit more context, and then you have the benefit of hindsight now. So you can add that context that yeah. you didn't have with the initial interview. It's really well done. This is Steve Rosen. You're listening to Rock is Lit with Christy Halberg. Rock on, Christy. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Since you were talking about getting to know Edward, I have to tell you, I feel weird calling him Edward because all I've ever heard is Eddie, Eddie Van Halen. There's this interesting bit in the book where you're talking about the offstage persona and the onstage persona were vastly different. I mean, that doesn't really come as a surprise. I think that's probably true of most performers. But what made that quote so interesting was that you said, when he was on stage, it was Eddie Van Halen. And when he was off stage, he was Edward. Explain the difference there. Edward was always extraordinarily poised and relaxed when he was on stage. I think he was absolutely at home there. The truth of it is, he was in many respects an introverted guy. Mm. He was an Edward guy. You know, he didn't go out a lot, but on stage, he was in his milieu. He actually sort of got used to people calling him Ed, Eddie. And I write in the book, you know, he always thought Eddie was like the name of a little kid. But he kind of got used to that. Alex, his brother, calls him Ed. But whenever Ed would call me, he'd always say, Steve, Edward, you know. I think in his mind, Edward was more of a um, a regal title. It was more classically oriented. I think he really loved that. But he really was to people on stage and off stage. And, you know, you said that a lot of musicians are like that. They are. But I've met a lot who aren't. Okay. And they're always on. And that's a different animal as well. Like cough, cough, David Lee Roth, maybe? Well, that's absolutely right. <laughs> Was Dave ever not Diamond Dave? I didn't know Dave that well. I ran into him several times. I interviewed him. And no, he was always Diamond Dave, which was great for the band. It worked for the band until it didn't work for the band. Yeah, Ed, Eddie, Edward, complex guy. And something else you talked about, which was going out in public with him. It was almost like the people who were fans had like a, a religious reaction to him. It, he was their God. And you mentioned that you felt like the invisible man, that you were not even registering with these people. They were laser focused on him. Sometimes that applied to Alex Van Halen, too. So how did he handle that, his brother's extreme fame? And he's a talented musician, he's in the band, but he's not as in the spotlight as Eddie was. I think that must have been extraordinarily difficult for Alex, though, and I write about it, nobody was a bigger champion of Alex than Edward. I mean, Edward was not going to go anywhere without Alex. Yeah. They'd always play together. He loved his brother, but they had their fights, you know, like all brothers do. He would always talk about Al. 
in interviews and, and all those things. And I write about that one little incident, and I thought it was so telling. They had just sold out, was it Joe Lewis Arena? Mm. I mean, I don't know how many people were there. I don't know how many people at Hope. 16,000, 25,000. It was insane. And Alex is up there, you know, and, and he's playing, and Edward is doing his thing. They come off stage, and we go back to the hotel, and I'm up in Edward's room, and Ed's unwinding, you know, and there's a knock at the door. And Al comes in, and he was bummed. He was sad. He was hurt. He was jealous. That's what I saw. Uh-huh. You know, he was jealous of his brother. And Ed tried to say, Al, I mean, you know, you're my brother. You're up there. I mean, it, it was just an amazing thing. I believe, and I never talked to her about it, I believe the same thing happened with Valerie Bertinelli. Okay. Right? She was Valerie Bertinelli. I mean, she's been on television. She's adored by everybody. Everybody loved her. She's making movies. She's very high profile. She's successful. And I believe in his presence that I don't think she became invisible like I did, but I think her silhouette sort of faded next to Edward. And honestly, I don't think there's a person on the planet who could have stood next to him and not felt the way. There were pictures of Edward with Eric Clapton and Billy Gibbons, those kinds of people. Okay. But anybody else? I mean, I got it. I saw it. It's not that fans were trying to be insulting to me. They didn't know who I was, yeah. you know. Yeah, I did not exist. Have you ever seen any other musician that you've interviewed, that you've been around, have that kind of effect on people? That's an excellent question. I'm glad you asked me that. I've been around a lot of musicians. Mm-hmm. Certainly not to the extent I've been around Ed and having, you know, hanging at his house. But yeah, I've gone to concerts where we'd be backstage and people would be coming up and is that one of their concerts or being at the record company when all the record company people will come in or different writers were hanging around. I cannot think of one other instance where it was like that. I don't mean to get overly dramatic, but it was like idolatry. I mean, it, it really was. They loved him and they revered him and they loved his music, but I think they loved the person as well. They didn't, they didn't know him. They'd never met him, but they felt like they knew him. And that came from his on-stage persona. And that's a really hard thing to do because most guitar players are up on stage and, you know, they're looking to the side or their eyes are closed or there's sort of a, not a frown, but they're kind of, you know, neutral. Yeah. And it was a smile and he's engaging, you know, and fans got that. That's why I think Edward went beyond being just a guitar player to a, a legend was that connection with him personally. How did you get past that? In your friendship, I mean, you had to have gotten past that to be a friend and not just a fan. You wrote that you were always aware of who he was when you were in his presence. So I can't, okay, like I put myself in your shoes and he's Jimmy Page. We're not going to have, you know, I'm going to sound like a blithering idiot. I don't think I would have ever had been able to get past that. It was a hard thing to do. (laughs) Yeah, It was a hard thing, Christy. It was like, I wrote literally every time I was with him, not to default to the natural inclination. My God, I'm sitting here with Edward Van Halen and he's playing guitar in my front room. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm at a concert watching Richie Blackmore play and Edward Van Halen is sitting next to me. 
it was a hard thing to do. And I really believe it, it came from sort of, I had been a writer for about four years before I met Edward. And it was meeting a lot of these guys where I was literally frozen, tongue-tied, Jeff Beck uh, was yeah. one of my all-time heroes. So interviewing Jeff Beck, I was knocking on his hotel room door and I thought, I cannot even do this. I really thought I couldn't do it, you know. And and I write about that where you, you have to sort of, it becomes a, I can only describe it as an out-of-body experience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you need to be this guy over here looking down at Steve Rosen, talking to Jeff Beck, hanging out with Edward Van Halen. Because if you really become too cognizant of it, you know, you go crazy or you start babbling or Edward, my God, you know, I can't believe I'm here and what an amazing solo. So it was really trying to keep that in check. Once in a while, I, I couldn't help it. I'd let loose and say, Edward, that was an unbelievable solo on, on the Fair Warning record. And, you know, he kind of goes, yeah, it was good. I realized early on that, one, he didn't want me saying it. Two, he didn't need to hear it. Huh. Edward knew what a good guitar player he was. His ego was so in sex that if you try to compliment him on his guitar playing, it was almost as if by using words to describe his guitar playing, it was almost lessening the artistry of it. Like, how do you look at a... A Da Vinci right. and you say, wow, what a great painter you are. You know, that false coast for story. And I think yeah. that's really how he looked at it. So I, I tried not to do that. But on the other side of that, going to his humility and having his ego in such tech and being such a balanced human being, he would play something or we'd be talking about something um, in one of the interviews, you know, a, a solo or a song on a record. And I'd go, um, yeah, it was good. Because I didn't want to go overboard and say, oh, my God, it was an unbelievable. Solo. And he said, sure. well, I thought it was me. Didn't you think it was good? As if he needed my input. You know, and it was so unbelievable that what I said would mean so much to him. But just goes to show that this remarkably gifted guitar player, he still needed to hear those things, but just yeah. in the right context. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, it was amazing. Whenever it happened, it was amazing. He evidently trusted you. I mean, he would call you up at like three or four in the morning and you recorded phone conversations and you called them the twilight tapes when he would call up in the middle of the night. Now, I can't imagine getting a call in the middle of the night, Teddy Van Halen, and he often wanted to talk about stuff. It wasn't necessarily the biz. So that must have been just amazing. Exactly. Those were the enchanted moments. Did he know you were recording those calls? He did. Let me backtrack for two minutes here, Christy. So back in 1985, I approached Edward and say, Edward, writers are going to come after you. They're going to want to write your life story. I would like to be that person. And he goes, yes, 
Of course it would be you, Steve. I, I can't think of who else it would be. Within and of itself was just remarkable for him to say that to me. So for about the next three years, I interviewed a lot of people around him, his friends, guys he had played in bands with. And he said to me, record anything you want. I don't care. Record anything you want. So wow. having that license, I felt comfortable recording those conversations. I knew I would never use them for anything other than that book. But he did say, go ahead and record anything. So thankfully, he caught these ungodly hours. And, you know, I, I try to have the cassette player near the phone. And, you know, they call and it's Ed, you know, and I, I try to hook it up, you know, and I miss some of those conversations. And I just, I cringe when I think about that. But I was together enough to record, you know, a few of them, which I call the Twilight Tapes, because Edward, uh, invariably, that's those are the hours he lived in. You know, he's probably been out in the studio and working on music. And honestly, he was probably getting high, um, yeah. you know, but that's just what he did. And there are times, many times I got high with him. And I have to say those were amazing times. I'd be a liar <laughs> if I said they were horrible and they were incredible. But so he would call and we'd talk. And yeah, invariably, it, it was not about music. And in fact, when I started the book, I just looked at all the cassettes that I had. You know, I'd labeled cassettes. So I hadn't, I found out I hadn't labeled them very accurately because I'd just make a cassette that would say Edward Van Halen on it. Yeah. No day, no month, no year. And I was thinking, oh my God, how am I going to put this together? So literally it took weeks and weeks and weeks to chronicle them in, you know, chronological order. And so I listened. Yeah, Steve, I'm going out on the road to the 1984 tour. Ah, there it is. It's the 1984, you know, and it's before the tours. So I'd have to like reverse engineer. When I, when I was going to begin the book, I just pulled out a tape at random. In fact, was in this other binder that I described. The binder was like this black binder and none of these tapes were labeled. They were labeled cryptically. One said Edward Van Halen, R-E-L period, uh, music. I'm going, what? Yeah. You know, and I put it on and he's talking about relationships. And I think he was talking about his father. And, oh. and literally the first thing that I heard and it was huge there was my dad thinks I'm a genius. And I remember that conversation. And Edward is sort of, I don't know if he's crying, but he is broken up by that, that his father, that he's relating that to me of what his father said. And yes. the second I heard that, I go, oh my God, I've got something even more amazing here than I thought I did. So yeah, the Twilight tapes were, they were amazing, you know, and 17, again, 17 years after my last conversation with him, as I came upon these Twilight tapes, you know, when I heard this stuff, I really, really, really wrestled with, do I include some of this stuff? Is this too personal? Am I going to incur the wrath of Van Halen fans who are going to come gunning for me? Am I going to embarrass somebody or insult somebody in the family? And it's the last thing I ever intended to do. I believe, and I still believe, and I think readers believe, that it was in those interviews when he talked about those moments and those very personal things that you really get an inside look, that you really understand who Edward Van Halen is, as opposed to asking him, Ed, well, what kind of guitar? You know what I mean? It just, yes. But he described it as humanizing him. And to me, that was great because that's what I wanted to do. Right? That was what I, it was on the tip of my tongue. I was going to say, 
those are the kinds of conversations that you relay that absolutely humanize him, that bring him down from the heavens. And I have to say, since you were talking about the conversation that you had with him about his father, there's a chapter in the book, chapter 15, it's called Like Father, Like Son. You read that for your YouTube channel. And when you read it, you also played some of that tape. And he absolutely does sound like he's crying. It is so heart-wrenching. It's really, really poignant. Let's talk a little bit more about his relationship with his father, because he clearly respected and admired him and craved his admiration in return. He did, absolutely. You know, his father was a musician um, back in the Netherlands, and from what I gather, pretty successful. He'd do like live radio performances. I mean, this is going back, you know, where they probably show up at a, a venue and it'll be like a radio broadcast. And uh, they record, you know, and, and I, he played in orchestras and bands. I believe he did some recording, uh, not not as a soloist, but I think as part of bands and orchestras. And early on was enamored with that. I know that he used to like go and, and watch some of his dad's performances and was playing piano at an early age. Alex also was incredibly gifted. Um, Alex was a really, really good, though no one's ever heard him. And I, I never have. Alex, I think, played sax and violin. Wow. Uh, I thought he was an even better musician than he was early on. But yeah, Edward's relationship with his father was everything. And I don't know because I never talked to him at length about it. And it's one of the conversations I wish I had. And I write in the book, you know, Ed, I need to talk to your parents. Ed, let's go talk to your dad. Ed, let's go talk to your mom. And he would never sort of arrange it. And when I look back on it now, I think that it was something that he consciously did not want me to talk to his parents. That's just my observation. I didn't write that in the book because I'm just, you know, postulating. Why do you think he didn't? I do not know. Maybe he would have somehow felt uncomfortable. You know, it's funny because I, I really wanted to talk to his mom. Well, I wanted to talk to both of his parents. But, you know, I asked about his mom the first time. And I said, Ed, I said, you know me, man. I'll, he'll be comfortable around me. He goes, no, no, I, I know that, you know. And he said, <laughs> and I can't remember the exactly what he said. He said, I want to be there. Like, I was going to go interview his mom without him. That comment to me was just amazing. Like, like I wouldn't want him there. Or he thought that somehow he would have been not welcome. I mean, I I can't exactly understand it, but there was something there. But as it turned out, I never interviewed his mom. I believe I met her once. uh, And I never interviewed his father. And then after his dad passed away, he goes, oh, did you ever talk to my dad? And I got a little angry with him. I go, Ed, I asked you repeatedly to talk to your dad. Yeah. Look, I had no sense that his dad was going to pass away, but I knew that there was probably nobody else who had ever recorded his father speaking. I mean, you just don't think about those kinds of things or right. video of your parents. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, when his dad was gone, that's it. I mean, you know, maybe there's home movies or something. But yeah, his relationship with his father was very special. I also believe he got that other side from his dad. I believe his dad smoked and his dad drank. Is that an environment thing where the kids now smoke and drink? Is it a hereditary thing? But I think being around his dad all the time, I certainly think it would have contributed.
Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. On the other hand, Edward's relationship with his mom, he says some things about his mother, and I thought, oh my God, can I print that stuff? But I, again, I think that reveals so much about him. So, Speaking of his mom, because I wanted to ask you about that. If you knew the nature of his relationship with her, because during that same conversation, he starts saying some really nasty things about her side of the family, and then he clicks off the recorder. So you don't get, well, we don't get to hear what else he said, but you did. I got the feeling that because his family came over to America in the 60s, I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So they were living in the Netherlands. His father's Dutch. His mother was Indonesian. And I think that his parents were experiencing a little bit of discrimination in the Netherlands because of the the mixed marriage. Mm -hmm. So they get here and... It was the family's understanding that, because his mother's side of the family was already in the States, it was the un- it, their understanding that her side of the family was going to help them yeah. when they got here, and they didn't. And he was very angry about that. So what else do we know about his relationship with his mother and that side of the family? Honestly, Christy, I wish I knew more. Yeah, you talk about it clicking off and you remind me, yeah, the kids clicked off. I'm sure he went on. I wish I could somehow remember what he said yeah uh, i mean for him to click the tape off there it must have been Oof. extraordinarily vile and with edward and you sort of touched on it earlier i think the reason we got along is that there was mutual respect obviously i respected the hell out of the guy and trust he trusted me that i wasn't gonna lie to him or hurt him or, or write things that weren't true or print something that i said i wouldn't so I think that what happened, yeah, when his mother's parents said they would sponsor the family, which is a huge thing, and then they didn't, I think that respect for his mother um, mm. man, just got really very thin. I don't know if he ever got over that. Wow. I wish I knew more. Those were yeah. conversations. I, you know, I wanted to talk to him yeah, about his family and who was the family here? What was the family life back home? And what was she like as a kid, you know, when he was six years old and his friends hanging around and all those questions that nobody can answer now. I mean, the only person yeah. I can conceive of that could answer him is Alex. I mean, if he had any relatives, I, I would imagine they must be pretty old by now. You know, I mean, maybe there's some younger relative back in the Netherlands, but, you know, Alec is the only one who, who knows that stuff. So. Yeah. Those are tales that are gone forever, pretty much. So, yeah, yeah. I wish I knew more about that, actually. Well, you're talking about thinking that he trusted you, and probably a lot to do with that involves the fact that you met him before he was Eddie Van Halen. You met him before that first record came out, and you struck up a friendship then. Going back to the family, 
the boys came over in the 60s and they didn't speak English. I can just imagine these two little kids from the Netherlands, they don't speak English. That had to have been the basis of the bond that those two boys, those brothers had that lasted throughout their lives. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And and that was another thing I wish I could have spoken to him more about. Yeah. Um, not a whole lot is known, but yeah, that was absolutely that bond. And then the musical thing, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, so with them, there was the bond. Yeah, with Edward, it was that. Yeah, that respect. And you're right. Because I thought about that, that I did meet him before that first record came out. You know, 77, I mean, they had, they were still playing like the whiskey. You know, they continued mm-hmm. playing the whiskey for a little bit, not much. Post seventy seven, yeah, there was just a band from Pasadena that had gotten a monster record deal on Warner, which I thought was unbelievable. I mean, I thought, well, at the very least, they have to be a good band. He's got to be a good guitar player to have scored a, a deal on Warner's, you know. But I yeah. think that was a big part of it that I didn't know before then. You know, I, have, I often thought, well, what would have happened had I met him after the fact, or you know, the first record comes out, or Warner Brothers was setting up interviews. And I went to interview this guy, Eddie Van Halen, you know, at that point, um, you know, I'm now a music journalist and I think it would have been entirely different. I don't, I don't think the friendship would have happened at all. I suspect you're right. Yes, serendipity. Stay tuned for the next part of episode 45 featuring Stephen Rosen. There's so much more of my in-depth interview with Steve about his book Tone Chaser and his 26-year relationship with Eddie Van Halen. We're going to talk about Richie Blackmore from Deep Purple and Rainbow and how Steve's friendship with Eddie took a turn and how Steve is coping with the death of his friend. Subscribe to Rocket Slits so you won't miss this or any other upcoming episodes. Until next time... Keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 